Good morning, Grace. Good morning. I'm Jake. I'm one of the elders here at Grace. Um, I'm glad you guys are here. Um, glad you're joining us this morning. So, take a little journey with me. I'm going to paint a picture for you, all right? So, just place yourself into this scenario. 3 a.m. This is you in this picture, this beautiful picture that I'm painting for you. All right. 3 a.m., 3 in the morning. You were in a dead sleep, right? You were, you were loving life. You are warm, comfortable, in a dead sleep. Life's good right now, right? We love that. 3 a.m., you wake up abruptly out of this sleep. And you're faced with one of the most difficult questions you're ever going to have to answer in your life. Do I, do I just stay here? Do I stay in this comfy bed? It's nice and warm. Maybe try to suppress this feeling and, and just try to go back to bed. Or do I get up and go pee? <laughs> Don't pretend like you haven't been there. We've all been there. This is a decision we all have to face. I know, my, from my experience, I won't be able to go back to bed. And if I do, it's horrible sleep. I got to get up. I just got to let it happen. Got to go, right? So I get up, right? If you're anything like me, I sleep in like the pitch black. Rain doesn't have to worry about it because she sleeps through everything. It's black. There's no light coming in through anywhere. There's no shade up so the ambient light's coming in. There's nothing. It's black, right? So I get up and I immediately know I have a journey before me right now, right? So I get up and I'm like, okay, I kind of know, know the layout of the land. This is my room. I know where I'm going, we, right? We have a, a bathroom like kind of in the, in the room right before the hallway where the kids are at. So I'm like, all right, I know where I'm going. So I get up, and I'll, there's the bed. I kind of move, right? And now I start, I start to get handsy right now, right? Because I'm like, okay, I know there's stuff around here. So I'm, I'm walking around, and then I'm looking for a wall, right? So I, I get to the wall. I'm like, okay, this is like, right, every night. So I hit the wall. Inevitably, I always hit my shoulder on, on the archway every time, right? And then I, I get the wall, and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm good now. I'm good here. So we got the bathroom door that opens up into this little hallway into our room, and it, it rests you know, parallel with the wall. So I got my hand on the wall. And I am not kidding, guys, when I tell you like nine times out of ten, my hand travels along the wall and somehow finds its way in between the wall and the door. And nine times out of ten, I hit my face on that long end of the door every single time. Even when I try to go to the other side of that little hallway, I, my face somehow finds that corner of the door. And I'm just like, oh yeah, it's hilarious, right? And I, I, I get to the bathroom, I'm good. Life would have been so much easier, right, if there had just been a little bit of light. Just a little bit of light, right? Because that would have helped me find my way. That, that light would have revealed so much to me. Just a little bit of light would have really helped me out. But that's what light does. Light reveals reality. Light reveals truth. Light reveals knowledge. Just a little bit of light, and I would have had the knowledge to know where I'm going. I would have, I would have had truth. This is where I'm going, right? The reality of the layout of the land would have been in front of me just with a little bit of light. We understand this. We're familiar with this, this light versus darkness, right? This metaphor, we get it. It's used in everything from media to storytelling. I mean, the entire Star Wars franchise is based off of this metaphor of light versus darkness. It's even used in the Bible. All right, the third verse in the entire Bible in Genesis talks about light. And then the, the 23rd verse from the ending of the Bible talks about light. The same light, too, the light we're going to talk about today. So we understand this. The Bible even talks about light. It uses this, this metaphor of light versus darkness and uses darkness as 
uh, this metaphor for the disastrous reality of the human condition, right? Called sin. That's darkness. Right? If I were to live my life actively pursuing sin or actively pursuing what God says isn't best for me, I'd be living in darkness. If, even if I was a nice or a good person, but I didn't realize my need for a savior, I'd be living in darkness. But even if I do acknowledge my need for a savior and I follow Jesus, I confess it, I admit it, and I follow him, we could still have seasons of our life and periods of our life where we walk in darkness, right? Because of our mentality, our thoughts, sin. This is darkness. So being able to understand this metaphor of light versus darkness, it's going to help us today because that's exactly what we're going to talk about. Last week, we started this new series looking at who is God. And we figured what better way to figure out who God actually is than by going directly to the source. So that's what we're doing. We're going to, the, to Jesus. We're looking at these seven statements, these I am statements that Jesus makes. And it describes exactly who he is. We learned last week that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. That's the one we talked about last week. We unpacked everything that entails. So last week to talk about that, how that means that Jesus is... He's essential for life, just like bread, just like food. He's essential for life. Also that he's accessible to everybody. And finally, that he, he is good. Over everything, he is good. That's what we talked about last week. So today we're going to look at this new statement where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So now when Jesus spoke these words, it was pretty powerful. Everybody around him knew exactly what he was saying. So I'm not, I'm not sure that all of us fully understand the essence of what Jesus was saying or at least how the, the religious leaders at the time received what he was saying. So I'm going to attempt to help us understand that. Um, so that's what we're going to do. I'm going to read these verses again. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to break them down into three parts. All right, I'm going to break them down into the context. Then I'm going to break it down into the claim and then the counter. The, the context is going to be the who, what, when, where, and why of all of these verses. What's going on here? What's the picture of this in, the entire text look like? Then I'm going to talk about the claim, this claim that Jesus makes. What, is, what does it actually mean? And then the counter is going to be how do, how do the people around him respond? And then also it's going to be how, how does Jesus respond to their response? So that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to read this again. You guys can stay seated. Just listen. And let's let, uh, let's let God speak to us here. This is going to be John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment's true. For it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. Well, I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where's your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one 
arrested him because the hour had not yet come. Guys, I'm going to pray real quick. Um, so let me do that. God, Lord, we thank you. Um, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, you, you're talking to us. You, you want us to have something from, for today. You want us to take something from this. Lord, I pray that, that you would make that clear. I pray that you would speak to us. Um, I pray that all of us would be listening with open hearts um, and, and prepared and ready to receive something from you, Lord. Teach us about your character. Even if it's just one thing, Lord, teach us something about who you are. I pray that everything is from you, Lord, and that you get all of the glory, 100% of it, Lord. We love you. Amen. So context is huge. Context is huge. Jesus has a way of capturing the moment and turning it to himself. We saw that last weekend. Last Sunday we saw that when he said, I am the bread of life, right? Jesus captured that moment. You had people coming to him because he was giving them tangible, actual bread. And he captured that moment by saying, I got something better than that. I am the bread of life. So he captured that moment and he turned it to himself. So understanding the full context of Scripture is, is very important. And in these verses, it's just as important. It sets up the entire scene. See, these verses here that we just read in chapter 8 are part of the ministry Jesus had during the Festival of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Tabernacles, right? This is part of the ministry had. It started in chapter 7, so just before the chapter 4, that ministry started. And here we are in chapter 8, he's still at this festival. So the Festival of Tabernacles was actually something that the, the, the Jews celebrated, commemorating God's provision as they wandered in the desert for 40 years. And they would do it every year to celebrate God's provision when they were in the wilderness for 40 years. That's what this festival is. In, chap- in uh, chapter 8 of verse 20, the last verse of this text today, it tells us that Jesus spoke these words in the temple treasury. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. So now at first glance, this might not seem like a big deal, right? But it's actually pretty big. This matters big time. This is huge. It sets up the entire scene. So he's in the temple, and in the part of the temple he's at is in the treasury, Right now, this isn't what I thought at first, like it's a little room, right, where like people get together and they're counting denarii, right? That's not, that's not what's going on here. This is a big courtyard. All right, this is a big place. See, one of, the peop- one of the things that people did when they came to the temple was they gave money. Right? The tithe, their offering. And in the biggest area of the temple, there were these 13 receptacles, right? They were like trumpet-shaped. And they were, they were places where you would put your offering in. There was 13 of them, and I don't need to get into the the dynamics of where all of them won. Each one of the 13 ones were designated and allocated for a certain place to go to. But there was 13 of these in this big courtyard. This was called the Court of Women. There was a courtyard just before that called the Court of the Gentiles. Anybody could go there. Anybody could go there. But after you left the Court of the Gentiles, now you're in the Court of Women, and only Jews could go there. Both men and women, but only Jews. You could go farther past that, but only the men could go into the next court. So we have this big court in the middle where everybody can go. So naturally, that is where they place all of the places where you can give your offering in this huge courtyard. It's actually in this place that I'm describing right now, the court of the women. This is the place where um, the, uh, the widow gave her last two coins. So it's, it's, in this, it's in this courtyard with thousands of people who would have been there for this festival at that time. 
That's where Jesus is. He's, he's right here. This is the most packed court in the temple. So how is this important? Why does this matter? Okay, because, remember, we're at the Festival of Tabernacles. This is happening right now. One of the ways that they celebrated this festival is that they set up candelabras all over the court of the women. These big candles on huge poles, they set them all over this court. Historians say that they, they literally filled the court of the women with the capability of light. So every evening they would have these huge candles and they would light them and they would burn all night long and then they would extinguish them if they were even around, if they're still burning in the morning. Every night they would do that. The Jews called this the illumination of the temple. The reason they did this, remember, is the Festival of Tabernacles. It commemorates the Israelites wandering in the desert for 40 years. How did they know where to go in the desert for 40 years? They were led by a pillar of fire at night and a lighted cloud by day. So this is the light that led them in the wilderness. And to commemorate that, they have this illumination of the temple. Historians describe this site as light literally flooding over the temple walls. So there's a lot of light. This was to commemorate God's provision in the wilderness when they wandered. And they, uh, historians also say that the, the Jews would quote um, Isaiah 49.6 and 42.6 that we just read a little bit earlier, saying that God is a light to the world. So this is the context surrounding Jesus when he says, I am the light of the world. So what does this claim actually mean? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What does this mean? I think it's important to notice what he does not say. Jesus does not say that he was a light in the world, right? Any rabbi or teacher who was in the area could have said that, right? They could have said, I'm, I'm a light. They're teaching, right? But he did not say that. He said he was the light in the world. He also did not say he was the light in Judah, or Jerusalem, which another rabbi or teacher could have said. He said, I am the light in the world. This is an exclusive claim. This is an all-encompassing claim, but more importantly, this is a direct claim to be the Messiah. And they knew it. They knew what he was saying. See, all the people there, all the Pharisees, all the religious leaders, everybody there to celebrate they were all very, very, very familiar with the promises of a Messiah that came through the, the prophet Isaiah. That was their Bible at the time. They were very familiar with it. They understood that God promised a Savior to come one day. So when Jesus says that, they know what he's saying. You have these chapters in Isaiah, chapter 42, 49, 50, and 53. These are messianic chapters that God is telling us there's going to be someone to come to save you a promised, a prophesied Messiah. In Isaiah 42 that we read, the first verse, this is God speaking about the Messiah. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This is a prophecy about the Messiah's coming and his, his empowering by the Holy Spirit. A couple verses later, in verse 6, it says, this is God speaking directly to the Messiah now. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people to be what? A light to the world. Isaiah 49, 6-7. God says, is it too light a thing 
that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the present preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is making the claim to be the Messiah that was promised. Cool thing is, in these eight short words, he's also claiming to be God. Psalm 27, 1, David says that the Lord is my light and my salvation. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He even uses the tetragrammaton, the four-letter word that we talked about last year, I am. That's the four-letter word in the Old Testament that was used to describe God. That's how God described himself. I am who I am. Jesus specifically uses the I am. I am means I'm God. The light means I'm the Messiah. Jesus is claiming to be God and the Messiah in these short words here. Everybody listening understood what he was saying. Everybody understood what he was claiming. He's saying, as the pillar of light led the Israelites in the darkness and in the light, in the wilderness, I am the light that will lead you to the kingdom. I will lead you to heaven. I will lead you to God. I will lead you to everlasting life. That's what this claim means. But he's not done yet. He immediately follows it up. He says, follow. Whoever follows me. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's saying this, this isn't a light to just be looked at. This isn't a light to be, simply be acknowledged or even admired. This is a light to be followed. Jesus tells us, right, deny yourselves and follow me. He told the disciples, follow me. Just like the Israelites followed that cloud, that lighted cloud during the day and the pillar of fire at night, it moved, right? It was probably pretty stressful. Not knowing where you're going. It probably went into places they didn't necessarily want to go either. It was probably very nerve-wracking not knowing where they're going or even knowing the road map to where they're going. But it eventually led them to the promised land and they followed it believing that it would. In the same way Jesus is saying to follow him. The cool thing is, is when we do follow him, he's the light that will lead us to the full promise of eternal life. So it may be confusing, guys. It may be scary. You may even have questions and doubts, but Jesus is calling us to follow him this way, to join ourselves to him. So just like that, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus turns the entire celebration to himself by capturing the moment with these eight words that proclaim not only he's the promised Messiah, but that he's God. Now we have the counter. How are people going to respond to this? How are people going to respond? And then we're going to talk about a little bit how Jesus responds to their response. First, we see the Pharisees' response in verse 13. The Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony's not true. Listen, this is, this is fantastic, their response. They're saying, you're testifying about yourself. You can't do that. That's not how it works, right? They're saying, why should we believe you? You don't even have any witnesses to confirm what you're saying is true. This isn't a legal claim. This, it's illegal, guys. It's illegal. It needs to be affirmed by at least two witnesses. This is a calculated attack using biblical law. This is how the Pharisees respond. 
Jesus knows what they're doing. He understands what they're referring to. In verse 17, in a minute, we'll get to it. It says, it says that um, Jesus says, In your law it's written that the testimony of two men are true. So he knows what they're already referring to. This is a calculated attack on Jesus. This is how the Pharisees respond. But we can actually learn a ton from this. We can learn a lot from their response because this is exactly how unbelief operates. Unbelief never has enough proof. Never. Jesus' words alone should have been enough proof for them, right? They heard him talk enough to know that this guy talked like no one has ever talked before. In fact, in the previous chapter, in chapter 7, that's exactly what was reported to them them by the guards that they sent to arrest him. So they knew. They knew. Not to mention the things they witnessed, like, I mean, this isn't a big deal or anything, but, you know, the, the works of power over disease, demons, death, and nature that Jesus did, there's that too. But unbelief never has enough proof. John 7, 17 says, if you're willing to know the truth, you'll know the truth. But they weren't willing to know the truth. They weren't willing at all. Their unbelief gave rise to ignorance. And this is what we should pay attention to. So you can be an unbeliever because you're ignorant, right? That's, that's probably all of us at some point, right? You can be an unbeliever because you're ignorant. That's a, that's a better situation to be in. It's not the best situation to be in, but it's a better situation to be in because if we can remove that ignorance, well, then you might believe. But the worst scenario is to be ignorant because you're an unbeliever. So that even if you're given proof, your unbelief locks you in to your ignorance. That was the Pharisees. They were ignorant because of their unbelief. They didn't process anything he was saying. They didn't look at the evidence. They didn't connect the dots. They just wanted him trapped and dead. Their ignorance was met with truth, and it was, they were still unwilling to see it. This locked them into the type of ignorance that is terminal. John seven seventeen. if you're willing to know the truth, you'll know the truth. If you're willing. So, are you willing? So generally speaking, generally speaking, if somebody were to come up to me and be like, hey, this whole Jesus thing, it's not, it's not, it's not real. It's not, it's not legit. There's nothing to it. There would probably be many ways I could respond, right? Probably a lot of them would not be good ways to respond. Two ways I could think of responding would be, first, I'd be like, wow, that you must have done some research that you must have done some really in-depth research over a long period of time because there are countless people through centuries that have devoted their life to the Bible and have come to the conclusion that this is, in fact, legitimate and true. So for you to overturn that, you really must have done some research. So I probably want to respond that way. That's kind of mean, right? That's kind of, that's, that's kind of rude. I wouldn't do that. Um, unless I had a good relationship with the person and we could make fun of it and joke about it and they would see the truth in that. However, another way that I could respond is I would say, well, are you willing? Are you willing? Because if you're willing, the truth is right there. So that's how the Pharisees responded. They weren't willing. They were ignorant because of their unbelief. Now we have Jesus' response. How does Jesus respond to this? What is his counter Verse 14, we see it. Jesus gives us two points in this. When he answers, he says, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. 
but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. He's saying, okay, this claim that I'm making that I am God and I'm the Messiah, it's actually valid. It's actually true, first of all, because of who I am. That's why it's true, because of who I am. This is a direct reference to that calculated attack they just made. Jesus, the, the, the Pharisees were referring to Deuteronomy 19.15 and some other Old Testament passage that talk about you need at least two people to confirm the truth, right? Jesus is saying, guys, guys, these laws, these laws are for liars, it works for you guys because people are liars, right? We need to confirm things with several people in order to get the truth. And even then, we're not even sure if we got the truth. That's how people operate. But that doesn't apply to God. God doesn't lie. Jesus says, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. I'm not subject to laws meant for liars. The law was made for man, not for God. He's saying... I. My, my, my testimony is true because I am God. Right? And then he doubles down on it and he says, you don't know where I came, or, but you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. I'm sorry. He says, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. He's saying, I'm God. I'm eternal here. I'm transcendent. He says it again in John 17 when he says, I come from the Father and I'm going back to the Father. He is forever. He is God. And he doubles down on it again, and he says, but you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. The crazy thing is, guys, they didn't even know what town he was from. They thought he was from Nazareth. They didn't even bother to check. But why would they, right? Their, their unbelief confined them to this willful ignorance. They never even looked at the temple records that they keep. They didn't look to see that, oh, he was actually born in Bethlehem, like, like the promised Messiah is told to be born. Or that Jesus is actually in the line of David, both father and mother. They didn't check to see that. Why would they? Verse 15, he says, You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Jesus is saying, you, you don't know me. You don't know me at all, but you're still judging me and my testimony. All you know is external. All you know is the physical, the outward. You don't even know the actual town I was born in. You haven't even checked your own records that you keep. You don't even know what you could know. But you're still going to judge me. Jesus is like, I don't judge that way. Superficially, that is. I don't judge that way. Why? Because I am God is what he's saying. This whole sentence is saying, I am God. That is why my testimony is true. That is why this claim is valid. Because I am God. And if that's not enough for you, Right, which, that's crazy that that shouldn't be enough. But if that's not enough for you, let me give you a second point. Not only is my testimony true because I'm God, but also because of my Father's support. We see that in verses 16 through 18. He says, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So, so yeah, this, this testimony is true because of who I am. I am sent from God. I'm going back to God. I am in perfect harmony with God because I am God. And now for the second point, like a, a loving father would, he succeeds to them, right? He succeeds to their expectation, and he's like, okay, okay. Even if I was held to your standard of law, which I'm not, but even if I was held to your standard of law, that says that the testimony of two men is true? Here it is. 
I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. You want to? There's to myself, my Father. There you go. Give you everything you want. You think that would be enough? This infuriated them. This made them so mad. And we see how they responded in verse 19. I'll read it real quick. It said, They said to him, Therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. At first glance, this seems like it's, yeah, maybe insulting. It's, it's a bit deeper than that. This is pretty mean. This is just an evil response. It's scornful. It's mocking. When they say, where is your father? They're alluding to his earthly dad, who they all knew had been long dead at this point. Where's your dad? <laughs> like, that's just evil. That's the point the Pharisees were at right now. I mean, even if you were a, just a guy, why would you be mean to someone like that? But when, when you have the proof in front of you that this is actually the Messiah, and you in your face, you, you, you mock him like this? I mean, I want to judge, right? But I've been there. I've done these things, so I'm no better. This is the last straw for the Pharisees, right? We see they try to capture him, but they're unsuccessful in that. The Pharisees prided themselves on knowing God. And ironically, Jesus says, you don't know God. You wouldn't know God if he walked up to you and was talking to you face to face, which is literally what's happening right here. This was a devastating statement to say that you don't know God. It was the characterization of the leadership of Judaism at the time of Christ. They didn't know God at all. Unfortunately, this is still true today of those who reject the Savior. Still true. So we have this claim. We have this claim that Jesus says, I am God. That I am the prophesied, the promised Messiah. Not only that, but that I will light the way for you to receive the full promise of eternal life. And not only that, I'll prove that this is a valid claim. Because of who I am, I'm sent from God, going back to God in perfect harmony with God, and also because I have my Father's corroboration and support in this claim. So what do we do with this, guys? What do we do with this? How do we apply it to our finite little lives, right? What, what do we do with this? How do we take something away from this? So I hesitate to like give large, heaping chunks of practical application for this because I, I fear that, you know, I don't, I don't want us to make the same mistake that the Pharisees made and then we focus on the doing rather than actually taking in the reality of Jesus' words. See, his words alone should be enough to incite change. Jesus' words alone should change our hearts, which will affect outward change. This is God himself telling us who he is. This is God himself telling us how much he loves us, telling us what his character is like, telling us his intentions for us in a loving way that we're actually able to comprehend. He didn't need to do that, but he does it. If we understand the gravity of this, it should affect us. It should affect us. But I will encourage everybody to think about what light means. And let's remember it and think about what light actually is, right? Light is the active power that dispels darkness. That is what light is. You love Jesus or not, that's what light is. It's a fact, right? Light dispels the power of darkness. Nothing you can do about it. So take that metaphor 
and apply it to what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I am that light. Jesus is that light. So what does that mean for us? It means a lot. It means Jesus is the light of truth that dispels the darkness of falsehood. It means Jesus is the light of wisdom that dispels the darkness of ignorance. Jesus is the light of holiness that dispels the darkness of impurity. Jesus is the light of joy that dispels the darkness of sorrow. Jesus is the light of life that dispels the darkness of death. So look at ourselves. Look at yourself. As I've been doing for the past month as I've been studying this. Assess where you're at. Are you walking in darkness? Are you walking in darkness because, well, you haven't acknowledged your need for a Savior? You haven't committed to following Jesus? It's all right because Jesus is the light that can lead you out of that if you follow him. That's a promise. Are you in darkness because you forgot how beautiful the gospel is? Is that why maybe you're in a little bit of darkness right now? Because you forgot that God loves us so much that he gave us his one and only son to die for us so that we can have a personal relationship with him. And not only that, but that he's with us every single day, with us, fighting for us and with us. Have we forgotten how beautiful that is? Is it just commonplace now? If so, Jesus is a light that can lead you out of that darkness. If you follow him. Or maybe... maybe it's a little bit of darkness right now because you're struggling. Right? Maybe, maybe think of it. Maybe you're a single parent and it, you, are just, you are just exhausted. Maybe you're stuck in addiction. Maybe you're believing lies about yourself. Maybe you compare yourself. Maybe you're a dad with a bunch of kids and a wife and you wake up every day and you're like, am I even doing this right? And you get caught up in the circumstance rather, rather than the victory that's already been given to you. Well, Jesus is the light that can lead you out of that. There's a promise, but you have to follow it. You have to follow this light. Don't just acknowledge it, right? Don't just acknowledge it. Don't just, don't just look at it. Don't even just admire it, but actually follow it. Follow it like the Israelites followed that pillar of fire in the wilderness with faith. Man, I know that if that thing got a little speedy, picked up a little speed and kept moving, that cloud was moving, that um, pillar of fire was moving, I guarantee they picked up their pace. I guarantee it. To see something, to see God leading you, I bet they ran after it. That's how we should be following this light. Even through the doubts, even through the confusion, even through the lies around there that you're tempted to believe, follow Look at what Jesus promises because, man, he's such a good God that he helps us. He gives us direction, but, man, it comes with promises, too. Look at this promise. He says, I am the light of the world, right? I'm God. I'm also the Messiah. I'm the Savior. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever follows me will have the light. You will have me, he says. If you follow me, you have me. If you follow me, I am yours. I'm your shepherd. I'm your sacrifice. I'm your living water. I'm your bread of life. I'm your light. I am your God. I am with you. If you follow me, you have me. 
This should affect us. This should affect our heart. This should make us want to run after it passionately. If it doesn't, then maybe there's a little bit more darkness in your life than, than you thought. And guess what? Acknowledging that is a great thing. That's why we do this. That's why we're here, right? To glorify God and come together and do this together. That's why we have life groups. That's why we have elders. That's why we have people that care about each other in this church to do this together. Talk to somebody. We just work through this darkness together. It's, 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 it's a promise, man. We follow this light. We have him. So that is my, that's my challenge for you guys this week, is to actually follow this light. Don't just look at it. Don't just be passive about this, but actually follow this light. Jesus is God. He is the Messiah. He loves us enough to be with us as we pursue him. So let me pray. Lord, uh, we love you, and we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you run after us. God, I pray during this, this last song we can, we can focus on how good you are and that you are a father that, that is worth pursuing. Lord, you are, you, are, you are marvelous. You really are. We love you, God. We thank you for all the things that you have done, are doing, and will continue to do. In your name we pray. Amen.